coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. Those soft skills often mean almost nothing. It's as I always joke, you know, you wouldn't be able to land the 747 because you're a nice guy, right? right. Or, or people like you, right? I mean, you could be the most well-liked guy. We put you in a cockpit of a 747 at 30,000 feet. That story is only going to have one ending. And, you know, it's the same thing of, you know, becoming a CEO or, or, or leader of a big organization. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 112. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. Jonathan is the CEO at both E7 Health and U.S. Drug Centers and the host of Bakhtari MD. E7 Health is a preventative health and wellness company that has been called the Uber of preventative medicine and was named the best technology company in the healthcare space in 2019. U.S. Drug, US Drug Test Centers is a na nationwide net network of over 20,000 testing centers in the U.S. and is revolutionizing drug and alcohol testing across the nation. A former triple board certified physician with specialties in internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care medicine, being a healthcare CEO is only the latest chapter in Dr. Bakhtari's life mission to help others by making an integrative preventative medicine available to everyone. Jonathan, thank you so much. So glad to have you on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me, Naftali. It's an honor. Thanks. And really what a special um, background here. And I really would love to dive into it. <laughs> but I do believe in um, what's the word I'm looking for? In Hebrew, we call it hashkacha. It's it's, <laughs> it's sort of a serendipitous um, sense that there's a, a divine orchestration. And so literally, I'm talking with my daughter this morning, and she's just wrapping up her undergrad and has already been accepted to become a PA. And she was talking with her professor about certain aspects, I guess, related to the end of her coursework and moving forward. And he said to her, I'm not sure if it was a serious statement or, or somewhat in jest, um, but he said that doctors that who, who who get A's for the most part in the coursework become teachers. Those who get B's are the best doctors, and the C's are the one who make the most money. I'm curious to get mm -hmm. your take on that one. <laughs> well, that's cute. Uh, no, I'm I'm not sure that's really true. Um, I think uh, I think a lot of in terms of what money people make ha has to do with what they're drawn to as a specialty. I mean, I think a lot of us in the early stages didn't equate oh, orthopedics with this money and cardiology with that money. I think we're drawn to something. And if you fall into something that does make more, uh, you know, revenue than another one, I, it may be more serendipity. Yes. So there are people who really target, you know, that, but I think that, you know, looking back at my colleagues that I trained with and grew, grew up with in, in the, in the field, I think we all were attracted to things that we had a natural talent for. And, uh, while it may be true in a minority, I, I don't think that's the true in the majority. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I, I have heard it in other areas too, not necessarily specific to medicine. And I know that as somebody who myself has spent a lot of time in school, I have two master's degrees, a doctorate, rabbinic mm -hmm. ordination. So I've done all of the 
coursework, one would expect, you know, have all the uh, accumulated all those degrees and and perhaps a different mm-hmm. conversation. We could dive into, you know, the value of all of that. But what I do find is that oftentimes there is a, I wouldn't say an inverse correlation, but certainly a lot of the individuals who were not necessarily so good at school, but were good at or are good at finding mm-hmm. ways to leverage their skill sets into making serious money. And um, I know that you have done something, not necessarily following that path of academics and whatnot. I'm sure you were an excellent student, but you have successfully leveraged Mm -hmm. your, let's call it academic wisdom in terms of what you learned as a doctor, which many doctors just, that's their career. They learn it, they become a doctor, they learn their specialty, and that they pursue that forever. You've done something different and you decided to open your own companies so I'm I'm curious to know a little bit more about your path. What moved you from, let's call mm. it medicine, which is a more conventional white collar industry, let's say, to the entrepreneurial side of things? And how's that gone for you? Yeah, that's a great question because there's a middle chapter that's missing um, uh, that I need to explain. I think yeah, I was a straight arrow. I went to medical school residency fellowship, joined a, a group, became a senior partner. But then in transitioning to what I'm currently doing, there was another chapter where I fell into administrative medicine, which was more being medical director of the hospital, being uh, you know medical director of insurance companies, and also being on clinical faculty uh, at three medical schools over my career. So there was a window where I tra- transitioned slightly from clinical medicine into what I call administrative medicine. And I, you get a taste of it in that world of what it would be like to be totally in the entrepreneurial private sector. So I think uh, that allowed me to have a more smooth transition. It wasn't like one morning I woke up and had an epiphany and um, and then all of a sudden made the change. So that transition really helped me. Interesting. You know, it's interesting. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of myself too, because everybody in education, for the most part, starts in the classroom. And so I began as a teacher, um, was relatively good, eventually started to explore administrative options. And while I would never call, no, I'd say never, uh, for the most part, I would not call school administration entrepreneurial in nature. There are certainly leadership components that Mm -hmm. one doesn't think about you know, when you're learning about curriculum and classroom management and things like that. And of course, you have to change your philosophy in a very significant way. So I'm just curious to know, what would you say are some of the primary benefits? Because, you know, a lot of people who are listening, either they're in leadership positions currently or they're thinking about it. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they're looking to potentially enter this space. And in my book, Becoming the New Boss, one of the things I talk about is that transition, some of the some of the positives, as well as some of the potential pitfalls. Would love to yeah. get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, you certainly, uh, I think, have to acquire new skill sets to move into like traditional, just like um, being a doctor or a professor or whatever. Uh, I think understanding that you need to acquire new skill sets is daunting. Like people are like, oh, okay, I got to stay a doctor. How am I going to learn all this? But I think what you need to realize is you have to take baby steps, just get on a committee, you know, just get involved in something. And what you will find is one door opens another door, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, like if someone's in clinical medicine and say, well, I want to start my own company, where would you even begin? So you have to understand it cannot be like a light switch going off and on where, okay, I'm doing clinical medicine. Now I'm CEO of a healthcare company. There's, you know, 
30, 40, 50, 100 little steps in between. And if you realize that opening one door often opens another door later on, and if you and you don't know what that door will be, so it's almost like a leap of faith where you just have to jump in the deep end and get involved. And I think that's daunting because they're like, well, how how could just signing up for one little committee, you know, uh, in a hospital, you know, get me to become my own CEO? It doesn't. But you do that, and you all of a sudden get on this committee, and somebody sees you, and they tell you about another committee, and. And then, you know, they see that and like, well, you know, you might be a good person for this. And and it's this idea of accepting that there be there will be other opportunities, but you got to take baby steps and then eventually uh, you get a bigger opportunity. You know, I love that because I think, like you said, it is daunting for people who are looking to approach leadership, their next career options, whatever that might look like. And they say, am I really ready for this? And that could be very, very scary. Um, I actually have a coaching client that I'm working with right now who, in the process of working with him, has had to transition. And he's now looking for a new position. And we talked about one thing that's on his radar where he's been invited for an interview. And, you know, he sort of took a step back and said, am I really ready for this? Especially because the last position didn't go quite uh, the way that he had hoped. And so we talked through some of that. We're going to talk about it more, but that can be very scary. We want to feel like we're fully ready for something. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's almost never that way. Yeah. And and let me take a 180 <clears throat> degree um, uh, viewpoint on that. A lot of times people think it's easy too, and they don't bother acquiring the skill set. So I've seen the other way. We're like, well, I want, how hard is it to be a CEO or a leader, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm a good guy. People like me. Uh, I'm easy to talk with, you know, and they think these kind of very vague soft skills are somehow going to translate into providing leadership, uh, providing mentorship, enrolling people into your vision, you know, uh, hiring, firing soft skills. Like I'm just a good guy. People like me, you know, you know, uh, people and she'll talk to me, whatever, whatever it is, those soft skills often mean almost nothing. It's as I always joke, you know, you wouldn't be able to land the 747 because you're a nice guy, right? right. Or, or people like you, right? I mean, you could be the most well-liked guy. We put you in a cockpit of a 747 at 30,000 feet. That story is only going to have one ending. And, you know, it's the same thing of, you know, becoming a CEO or, or, or a leader of a big organization. Just because you're a great guy and everybody likes you or whatever other soft skill you want to insert, that doesn't mean you have a skill. So you have to acquire it. And that's that's why we talk about the baby steps, because the baby steps allow you to acquire those. Yeah, you know, I really would love to go even deeper here because, you know, we can go back and forth as far as what's more important, the technical skills versus the soft skills. And can you lean on your people as you're getting started? You know, I think there's a lot to unpack when it comes to approaching new positions or new opportunities and things like that. But the reality is you've done it. And I'd like to ask you specifically something I read in the bio that I thought was kind of interesting. You talk about how E7 Health has been called the Uber of preventative medicine. What does that mean? Well, you know, um, we developed a company, E7 Health, and we just rolled out uh, e-national testing. Um, uh, and what it is, is basically we wrote technology and software. And we're really a technology company masquerading as a healthcare company uh, where people can easily get access to whatever they need, whatever physicals, testing, blood work, 
literally, you know, book an appointment on your app. It's like, it's almost like buying something on Amazon, you know, just book an appointment, show up, everything's on your portal. There's no numbers, there's no weights, there's no clipboard when you show up, you know, nothing. Uh, Everything is That alone is worthwhile. I hate those clipboards. (laughs) I know, right? Which I always joke, uh, all these doctors and healthcare organizations say we have electronic health records and they're boasting about it. But then you walk in their waiting waiting room, they hand you a clipboard. You know, I'm like thinking, Uh, hmm, gee golly, how how elegant is your electronic health record system that you're handing me a a 12-page clipboard? Right. Uh, so any, uh, you know, so I think what we did is we look, we looked at Amazon's technology. Like I want to buy, you know, a uh, printer, right? I mean, how many, literally how many clicks will it take for me to order that, you know, going on Amazon, boom, 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 you're done. Okay. So, and we wanted healthcare to be the same way. That's why we got that award uh, for the best healthcare uh, technology company in 2019, because with E7 Health and now E National Testing, we, uh, our patients around the country can order almost any test and just show up, uh, get it done, and the results are in their portal. So, uh, especially with E National Testing, it's available in New Jersey, everywhere now, and um, that's re- I think revolutionized. You don't need to, you know, wait four weeks to see your doctor. Uh, you know, we have twenty thousand uh, locations for the drug testing with. 4,000 for the laboratory testing. So we've consolidated this network so almost anyone can get anything done without having to do anything. Nice. So I, I like it for a few different reasons. Uh, I mean, I haven't used it personally as a as a patient, but I like the idea that you're making things simple. As I mentioned before, the clipboard to me is anathema. It's actually a reason I don't go see doctors because I cannot stand that whole process. Mm-hmm. But um, thinking about it internally for a moment, thinking about it on the leadership side, what I hear from you, at least indirectly, is there was a vision of how do we simplify this process? How do we make it happen where with a handful of clicks, maybe not as rapid as, as Amazon, but certainly within a tight time frame, I can get my information where it needs to be so that I can get the services that I'm, that I'm seeking. I, I would imagine that that's the kind of thing that didn't just evolve like, you know, some epiphany that you had, and then all of a sudden everybody was on board and whatnot. Walk us through the process a little bit of how you moved, how you, how you developed your vision, but really more so how you made sure that that vision became a shared vision internally within the company so that you were able to deliver the results that you sought. Because I think a lot of people have visions, a lot of people have ideas, um, but oftentimes the execution, especially when it involves multiple people and multiple stages, is where it gets difficult and then we freeze and we don't really know how to move forward. Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, I mean, really, I developed my vision only because I was fortunate enough to have the perspective on the problem from four different angles. Remember, I, I practiced clinical medicine, so literally seeing patients in the office and the hospital. Then I was an assistant clinical professor so uh, in three medical schools. So I got to see it from the teaching side, teaching residents, teaching interns. Then I was a hospital administrator, uh, you know, literally got paid by the hospital, worked for the hospital uh, as a medical director. So I got to see the perspective from the hospital side. And then I was medical director for Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield for the state of Nevada and other insurance companies. And I got to see it from the insurance company side. 
So once you see it from everybody's side, you get to see it from the insurance company, you get to see it from the hospital, you get to see it clinically, you get to see it from the teaching. You know, sometimes the problem becomes more clear to you or you have a more simplistic view of what the real issue is. And I think it was having all four of those experiences that, you know, allowed me to kind of say, listen, there's got to be a better way for someone who just needs a cholesterol test or if somebody just needs, uh, you know, a certain uh, test uh, not to, you know, go through that whole phone system where they press one, press two, press four, and then, you know, they wait and somebody calls them back just to get an appointment. Uh, you know, that just seemed ridiculous. And you walk in, they give you a clipboard, and you wait two hours, that, all of that seemed unbelievable. So we just knowing all that and knowing how the insurance company works, knowing how uh, healthcare works, we just said, well, you know, if Amazon can write technology, why can't we? I mean, healthcare technology should be leaps and bounds ahead, ahead of Amazon, and yet it's it's not. And why is that? So we just addressed that, you know, head on over the course of five, 10 years. It wasn't, we woke up one morning and uh, boom, it just happened. Yeah. No, I love that. And I'm, I'm I'm curious to know about something. This is actually related to healthcare on multiple levels. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I just literally start. Oh, here it is. Young Forever is the name of the book, Dr. Mark Hyman. And I'm just listening to his, I guess you would say, approach to health and aging and things of that nature. And in, in the course, the course of talking about let's call it traditional medicine versus maybe holistic or certain other types of approaches. So he talks about how change in society in general, whether it's in healthcare or other areas, can oftentimes be really slow moving, right? For people to accept new realities that the earth is round, that you know, uh, the sun, uh, that the earth orbits around the sun, whatever those changes, those massive paradigm shifts that somebody brings to the collective consciousness of others, it oftentimes mm -hmm. can take a generation or two for that to become the accepted norm. I'm curious to know, because healthcare has been so entrenched for so long in this old way of doing things, as it relates not so much on the patient side, because I'm sure people are, are more than delighted to quickly grab onto this new technology, although I'm not sure that I'm right. Uh, I'm wondering from the practitioner side, what kind of coaching, what kind of selling do you need to do in order to get people to make that kind of change? Because I think that this is informative to people in all different types of industries and offices and whatnot. You, change is hard, right? People mm -hmm. don't like to do things differently, especially once we've established habits and routines. So what's your take on that? Well, you know, there there may be something that we're leaving out of this uh, question, which is, you know, you said change in healthcare is hard, but I think change in healthcare is hard for a very particular reason that almost doesn't apply to any other industry. The analogy I give is if you and I were sitting here and deciding where we want to go for lunch, you know, all we have to do is between you and I, you come to some sort of compromise or resolution, you know, we're going to go to this place. But now let's say there was five of us at the, at, you know, sitting at the table trying to figure out where we're going to go for lunch. It's not going to be the same process. One's a vegetarian, one, you know, doesn't uh, like this, and one, you know, wants to be, go to this neighborhood. And I think healthcare suffers from that. There's just too many stakeholders at the table and and there's nothing 
difficult about healthcare technology. It's just there's two there's government, you know, Medicare, Medicaid has their thing that going on. Uh, you know, uh, and then you got the doctor, you got the patient, you got the hospital, you got the insurance plan. All of this, you know, private insurance, everyone wants to have their thing protected. Okay. And so this is why it's trying to get, you know, seven people to agree on a, on a restaurant versus just me and you. Uh, when you go to Amazon, the transaction is only between two people. It's just you and Amazon. As long as you agree and Amazon agrees, you're going to get that product. Well, right? it sounds to me like you're only strengthening what I'm saying because you're actually dealing with a more complicated form of change. In other words, you're trying right. to bring a product to market that even more people have to give their blessing to. So I'm I'm curious to know no, based uh, off of that. Yeah. yeah, what we did though, we just we got rid of everybody else. It's just you and it's just the client and us. That's it. I mean, we got rid of everybody. Nobody else is involved. So what we did was we made it that simple. It's just you and us. And you know, and then we could write technology for that. And when we write that technology, then all we're focused on is removing friction for you removing friction for my team, my staff, and pr providing quality, improving quality. So if we're focused on quality, quality care, quality product, and we're concerned about reducing friction for the customer and making that experience amazing, you know, I, I think we're probably the only healthcare company in the country that literally has a 4.9 uh, out of five uh, review uh, stars on, on on Google. It's unheard of. I defy anyone else to find another medical establishment that is 4.9 out of five on literally a thousand or more uh, Google reviews. And that's just, and we have 10,000 positive reviews on our website. That's not a testimony to anything except the ease and the quality that we make it because other people provide services we do. Why is it that we get the kind of reviews? So if you go to e7health.com and just read customer reviews, 10,000 reviews in three years. That's unheard of in anywhere else. How do you even get 10,000 people to write a review? You know, And so that's a testimony to what they're experiencing. And so that teaches us that if you reduce friction, if you make it easy, if you give them a glide path to get what they want at amazing quality, very affordable you know, are people going to be happy? And also my staff to deal with those 10,000 people, you know, it can't be cumbersome. They can't be, you know, sitting at a computer, punching in a million things and still attending to them, right? So as we reduce friction for my staff, my company, that allows them to focus on the client, right? They're not busy staring at a computer. I, I did a podcast on on, on my podcast, Bacteria MD last year, and where I reviewed multiple studies that show a typical healthcare provider, including doctors, spends 80% of their time staring at a computer while you're visiting them. That can't be good for anybody. I mean, they can't, I mean, they should be they should be making contact with you, yeah. right? Not not the computer. And and that tells you the problem. So the question is, how do we remove friction in the system? So all we're concerned about is the actual product, which is great care, focus, attention you know, paying attention to details, understanding everything. Um, so so the person, the client or the patient comes out thinking, oh my gosh, that's amazing service. And also the, per the person doing the service isn't being beat up, you know, uh, spending, you know, hours on a computer just to sure. make other people happy. 
I think that's great. I mean, the idea of reducing friction, making things simple, allowing you to focus on what's most important. Now, these are things that I talk about all the time, and I can see the relevance not only to a company like yours, but number one, to any service provider or anyone who's selling anything uh, mm-hmm. to the marketplace and simultaneously mm-hmm. internal conversations. How do we make things as easy as possible for our own people to make sure that they could do their jobs in the very best way possible, feel affirmed, feel like they're, they're, they have purpose and meaning in what they do. So there's, I think, probably an infinite amount of applications to this concept. And I think it's really, really important. And I thank you for that. And, and I want to ask you, I know you talk about this, the seven, um, what is it now? The seven secrets, uh, skills, excuse me, seven skills mm-hmm. that entrepreneurs that most successful entrepreneurs possess. I'm curious to know if you could share a few of those, the ones that you would think are the most important for entrepreneurs as far as elevating their business. You know, I actually, yeah, I also, um, you know, did a couple of podcasts on this, but I mean, to, to, to summarize most of it, I mean, the gist of it is, I think a lot, a lot of people kind of hitting on what we talked about earlier, uh, need to first understand that they have to acquire skill sets, you know, Enrolling people into your vision is probably the most important thing to having a successful company. I bet you there's hundreds of startups in Silicon Valley that have great ideas, but they don't get five, 10 initial people that are all bought in. And that doesn't happen by accident. So as a leader, you have to enroll people into your vision. So a great idea can fail if you don't have the proper execution. And the proper execution comes from really great talent, Okay, but then great commitment and enrollment and, you know, like uh, there is no plan B, right? So if the initial five people have this mindset that there is no plan B, like this is going to work or else, I mean, it's got to work, assuming it's a great idea, what have you. So this whole idea that, you know, um, failure is not an option and I'm going to then enroll people as a leader into my vision and get them to be bought in, if that makes sense. The second thing I always tell people if you really want to become a leader is not to work necessarily more than 40 hours a week, although many do, but to always be on. I think, you know, this whole idea that I'm always on, meaning if something happens at nine o'clock at night and your server crashes or something happens or a client is really upset, you know, you should be reachable. I mean, you can't, you know, this whole whole idea that I'm the CEO now and, you know, I, I'm i going to have this, um, especially in the first few years, you always have to be on. Doesn't mean you always have to be working, yeah. right? I mean, you can, but still you could be on vacation, but if something happens, you know, you have to, to be available um, to, and also I think your staff picks up on it, right? They pick up on this whole idea that, oh, he's so engaged. I mean, uh, I, I can't believe he's, you know, answering emails in the evening and, you know, especially if it's important, what have you. Uh, there are more, but I mean, I think, you know, this whole idea that you're going to be a mentor, you're going to enroll people into vision, and you're always going to be on uh, are just a couple of the, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 uh, skills that really would help to uh, ensure success. So let's drill down on that first one for just a moment. Um, people want to know practically, how do you enroll someone in a vision? First of all, how do you develop a vision? Maybe take a step back. Mm-hmm. You know, how, what, what does that mean to you when you talk about a vision? And then how do you get people to be as excited, as focused, and as bought in as you are? Well, I mean... Uh... 
The first thing that people look to if they're going to follow someone as a business leader is their integrity. You know, are they in it solely for themselves? You know, uh, I tell people who ask me, you know, I wake up every morning and as, as CEO, my job is to improve the lives of everyone in the company, including, uh, you know, just middle staff, whatever level staff, but financially and professionally and per personally on some level, your job, you know, is to make money, but your, your real job is to improve the lives of everyone in your organization. And, and if people pick up that that is really what's driving you, you know, hey, if we get this account, maybe we, you know, we can uh, lighten up this or take this, or this will get better for all of us. I mean, this whole sense that we're all uh, on a boat, and you know, if a storm comes here or there, we're all on in it together. If there's this disconnect between good things and bad things happening, and you know, you're not protecting them when you need to, uh, and I'll, I'll, you know, and also to take the bullet. Sometimes, if there's difficult conversations, you tell your staff, you know what, let me handle that. That sounds like a difficult conversation with a vendor. Maybe you listen in and let me take it on. Versus, you know, just and I think your staff picks up on that. You know, they will pick up on the fact. If you're engaged, uh, or if all you really care about is the bottom line, or some other thing, or or if you're in, like, um, you know, look, there were several times when we remodeled our, our when we were growing so fast, and you know, one of the things I did is I just, I not that I, you know, I just said I don't need an office. Let's get rid of my office, you know, because we needed this stuff. And you know, when your staff says, "Oh my gosh, look, this guy is the CEO, but he doesn't even have an office." Sometimes I sit in a cubicle to get work done. And um, and I think that sends the message that, look, he's on the team. He's not, you know, he's not just in it for himself. And I think figure out different ways to show that you're on the team. You're not, you know, just the top guy and everyone else is somewhere else. You literally. And, you know, the other thing uh, that I did very early on is, you know, I, I, for example, I answered the phone. I mean, it would drive my staff crazy. I would answer the phone like for the simplest appointment I would, and I would take it. I, I booked the appointment and they're like, I can't believe this because if it got to the second or third ring, I would pick it up. And I, and they taught my staff that don't let the ring, don't let the phone ring more than twice. Cause he'll pick it up. And it actually, you know, they were like diving for the phones because they knew by the second ring, I would get it. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and of course, you know, instead of like going out there and just say, come on guys, pick up the phone. You know, uh, don't let, you know, don't let, we can't have all these missed calls. You know, you, you just pick up the phone and it's, it's, that's leadership to, to kind of convey to them that, Hey, I, I'm not just here to tell you work harder. I, I'm here in the trenches. Now, you know, good news is that's at the beginning. And eventually, you know, we have so much staff and we develop algorithms to answer the phone and, you know, ways to address it. But in, early on, I was taking out the garbage. And if a, if a fax machine broke, I was tinkering with it. And, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of people, I'm the CEO now, so I'm, I'm just going to be in my office and, you know, taking meetings uh, versus being in the trenches. And, you know, if there's someone's upset, a you know, patient, a client, you know, are you going to get in the weeds? Anyway, I think I could go on and on, but yeah, it's yeah, it's this this sense I hear that it. that you you are in the trenches. Yeah. So let's talk. Let's end the segment with the question that I ask all my guests, and that is for what is the biggest mistake that you've made through this incredible journey of yours so far, 
and what did you, what have you learned from it? I don't, you know, people always kind of probably turn this question into a positive, you know, it's like a, not a real mistake. But uh, I think our biggest mistake the first few years is just making the mistake of not investing in technology. I, I think I never fully understood the ROI on the right technology. I mean, that our investment in technology has rewarded us, you know, 10x, 20x, 30x. I don't even know what it is. Uh, you know, what, what used to take us hundreds of how, hundreds of hours of scanning and whatever else we were doing, you know, all of that has gone away. And I wish, I wish, I wish I had pulled the trigger on that earlier. It just was, I thought it would be better to do it very incrementally. Uh, and in retrospect, I wish I had just gone head, head first into the deep end and, and done that from the beginning. But you know, it, I don't know if I would have realized that as well as I realize it now. So, okay. So now we're going to shift to rapid fire, short and sweet. Um, this first one might be a little tricky, but I'm curious to get your take. What do you see yourself as first, doctor or CEO? Um, I would say, I suppose to be rapid fire. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a listening I, I, thought there. Yeah, I, look in my mind, I'm always a physician. You know, uh, I mean, to this day, friends, family, I, uh, the day doesn't go by where somebody doesn't call me, you know, from Shul or from somewhere asking me something about something. So it's that is who I am. Uh, I I always pretend like yeah, you know, when I first became a doctor, I know it's not rapid fire. It's a great story though. When I first became a doctor, uh, I was an intern. You know, I remember that for my first night and call the nurse called me and I was just a newly minted doctor. And she calls me, goes, oh, Mr. Smith is short of breath. And, you know, I kept on thinking, you know, why are you calling me? You should be calling a doctor. You know, he had this imposter syndrome that you're not really a doctor. And I think, you know, this whole idea that I'm a CEO, I, that's also I feel like an imposter. I'm really, I think, a, a physician first. Okay, so I'm in trouble now because I think the next one's going to probably yeah. also potentially open up some some more conversation. But let's see what we can do with this one. Culture over strategy. Agree or disagree? A thousand, a thousand percent culture. Okay, let's move on then. Something you enjoy outside of medicine? Uh, love to travel, especially with my family. It's a big thing. Um, uh, I... Uh, you know, one of my hobbies is, uh, you know, I, I love uh, some vintage watches. I'm a little watch collector, not that big, but I, I love watches. Um, then I love, I'm a huge sports fan. You know, went to the playoff game last night. I mean, in hockey and we're, we love sports and season tickets and this and that. So nice. I, I think that that should cover it. There you go. And then finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. Delegate, delegate and don't micromanage. Nice. I'm about to uh, actually launch a masterclass this afternoon, Eastern time on delegation. Mm -hmm. So right in my wheelhouse. All mm -hmm. right. So how can um, people connect with you, find you, learn more about your work and benefit from all that you've accomplished? Yeah. So in terms of our websites where you, they can get some of our service, enationaltesting.com is probably the go-to place. Uh, in terms of connecting with me, I have a website, baktarimd.com, B-A-K-T-A-R-I-M-D.com. Also, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, but I think BakhtariMD has pretty much all the content, my blogs, interviews. You know, uh, I've been on the Washington Post, USA Today. All of that stuff is on that website. Okay, doctor. So I have to ask you, as I always do with my with my guests, for one final life lesson, 
to wrap up our episode. Mm-hmm. Life lesson. Um, you know, I, I think as you get older, this becomes more clear, which is not to take yourself seriously. You're, you're not that good. Uh, you're not that great. Um, you know, I, I heard a great quote behind uh, every great man is a woman uh, behind him telling him he's not so great. So I definitely that applies to me. Uh, I think just being humble, understanding that if you w- work to lift everybody in your organization and everybody you touch, uh, it'll, everything will come around. Everything will end well. We should have had this conversation about 15, 13 to 15 years ago when I was really getting into school leadership to keep mm-hmm. everything balanced for me. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today, for sharing your wisdom, your experiences and whatnot. I'm very excited to uh, share this content with Lead to Succeed Nation. And um, I really hope that uh, everybody will reach out to you and uh, benefit so much from uh, from your experiences and your wisdom and, of course, yeah. your services. Thank you, Naftali. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 